Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a guy that informed me earlier today that due to recent cutbacks, the light at the end of the tunnel has been turned off. He is the captain. (laughs) Yeah, for all Browns fans. It's good to be seen, and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are drinking Diamond Bear Brewing Company's Pale Ale out of Little Rock, Arkansas. Garage Raid, three and a half bottle caps out of five. I think their Pale Ale was the first beer that Diamond Bear made. Mm. It has gone on to win three gold medals at different brew competitions. It's earthy malts versus bright, beautiful hops, and it's highly drinkable, and it's also the favorite of Diamond Bear's founder. And it was brought to us by some of the garage's favorite friends. First up, we have Morgan listening on the Long Island Railroad. Go straight to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Next, we have Lily in Marietta, Georgia, and we also have a cheers from Allie and Jen up in Ontario. Well, cheers, mates. And a big we like your jib to Sarah in Charlotte, North Carolina. And a shout out to Nikki in Baltimore, Maryland, who says she loves her douche canoe shirt. And you can love your douche canoe shirt as well when you go over to truecrimegarage.com and click on the store page. Got a bunch of t-shirts there. All right, next up we have Natalie in Phoenix, Arizona. And last but not least, we have Chelsea and her fiance TJ. So cheers to everyone who bought us around for Don't this. Don't do it. Don't. <laughs> Don't do what? get married stay happy all right if you want to help out the garage guys and girls make sure you are subscribed to the show tell a friend to subscribe to the show and go to itunes and leave us a five-star review yeah tell everybody you know about us keep us going strong in 2018 all right captain that's enough of the business everybody gather around grab a chair grab a beer let's talk some true crime
This is an open letter to Melissa Witt's killer. We are still searching for you. We know that you are most likely still in this community. You are someone's friend, co-worker, spouse, parent, or neighbor. On the outside, you might appear to be normal, even friendly and kind. But on the inside, that's a different story. Because in your heart, you carry murder. You carry the horror of the crime you committed against an innocent young woman. I often wonder if Melissa was the first person you murdered. Or had you killed before? And have you killed since? The details of the crime make it clear that you have ties to the area in which Melissa's body was discovered. You knew that area well. Maybe you're a hunter. My guess is you are someone with very poor relationship skills. You are most likely a loner. You have severe anger issues. You probably abuse people and animals. Did you interact with Melissa? Did Melissa reject your advances? I bet she did. And I bet that made you feel humiliated and angry. You must have been embarrassed when a beautiful 19-year-old girl wanted nothing to do with you. This made you feel small. And when you did not get your way, you threw a fit and lashed out at her. You're pathetic. Sometimes I think you might even live near the location where you left Melissa's lifeless body. Is that why you chose that location? Do you ever worry that people close to you suspect you of Melissa's murder? Do you ever wonder if they have noticed your suspicious behaviors and whisper behind your back? I believe they do suspect you. I believe they will come forward and turn you in. It's only a matter of time before they figure you out. Once they suspect the horror you are capable of committing, they will tell others. It is my hope that if anyone who knows you and suspects you of Melissa's murder, I hope they find the courage to come forward and tell us who you are and what you have done. In fact, there is an anonymous tip line set up for this very purpose. I hope that scares you. There's a Facebook page, Who Killed Missy Witt? There have been over two and a half million people who have visited this page. And I hope that scares you. Just know, you won't be able to hide forever. Law enforcement will find you. And I look forward to the day that your secrets are revealed. I look forward to when you are arrested and convicted for what you have done. This is the case of Melissa Witt. A while back, Captain, we started looking into an old cold case. This is the disappearance of Melissa Witt. 
Melissa Witt was a 19-year-old who went missing from a parking lot in Fort Smith, Arkansas, back in December of 1994. Yeah, and about six weeks later, they're going to find Melissa Witt's body. And about two weeks ago, we were lucky enough to speak with LaDonna Humphrey, who has dedicated her life to missing persons cases for over a decade now. And she knows all the details about the Melissa Witt murder investigation. She's been there working on it for quite some time. And let's listen in as LaDonna tells us more about herself and tells us how she got involved in the case of Melissa Witt. Well, I am the executive producer for a documentary that uh, my team is putting together about uh, Melissa Witt. Um, It's entitled Uneven Ground, The Melissa Witt Story. And we became involved in her case really because of my background. So I have been a missing persons advocate for just over a decade. Um, In fact, um, 11 years ago, I helped to co-found an organization that um, offers assistance and resources to families that have missing adults all across the United States. Because what we had seen, by and large, is that there were uh, many resources given to missing children, but nothing really... um, for adults. And in that process, um, that team, that nonprofit team, really wanted to put together a documentary. And that is something that had been on my heart for a very long time. And, and we started putting the um, pieces and processes in place to make that happen. And as we began to look at different cases, and there are just thousands of cases across the United States. We really were touched by Melissa Witt's case. One, it's in our own backyard, Um, but we we just weren't sure if if that was the right direction to go because technically Melissa Witt isn't still missing. She was missing for 30 days before her body was found. But, you know, really, long story short, our team was so captivated by her case and really wanted to see justice happen that we felt like if we were able to get involved that maybe we could somehow – help bring some closure to the case, and if not closure, um, at least more awareness to what had happened, um, perhaps maybe to save the lives of other teenage girls. So that's really how I became involved in the Melissa Witt case. Can you tell us about Melissa Witt and what kind of person she was and what was she doing leading up to 1994? Melissa Witt was, was described by friends and family as just, uh, you know, an all-around good girl. She was fun to be around. She was happy. She was very caring. She was um, a great student. She was very involved in um, her school. She was involved in church activities. She really, really, really um, never met a stranger, didn't have any enemies. Melissa grew up um, and lived with her single mother, um, Marianne Witt. She did have a relationship with her father when she was older. In fact, she was probably close to her teenage years before she really was able to build that relationship with her father. Um, Melissa um, doesn't have any um, biological siblings, but she um, did have some siblings that um, were related to her through her father's side of the family. So, and and they are still alive, but unfortunately Melissa's parents um, are both deceased and they've never you know, they weren't able to see the case solved, which is something that weighs really heavy on my heart personally. Melissa and I never met each other, but I actually have friends, pretty good friends, that knew Melissa Witt. So this this case really hits home for me because she was just an all-around likable, 
lovable girl. Now, in 1994, Melissa Witt was a college student. Is that correct? That's right. In 1994, um, Melissa was attending the community college in Fort Smith, what, what was then called West Art Community College. It's now the University of Arkansas in Fort Smith, but it was West Art Community College at the time. She was wrapping up her her first um, semester of school. You know, that December 1st was a Thursday, and she was going about her, her, her day. She had gone to class that morning. She went to lunch with a friend. After she left that, that lunch meeting with a friend, she um, went to work. She worked for a, a dental office in Fort Smith. Her goal in life was to be a dental hygienist. Well, let's get right into it. Let's get into December 1st, the day that Melissa went missing. You know, she left work that day. I mean, it was just a typical day. You know, left work that day to go home and change clothes, and that's just when everything fell apart. Um, she went home. She changed clothes. She found a note from her mom that said, hey, I'm at, um, you know, Bowling World tonight. You know, her mom bowled in a league. If you want to stop by, you know, come see me. I'll buy you a hamburger. I know we argued this morning but I'd really like to see you. And so it's believed that Melissa saw that note, and that's why she went ahead and went to Bowling World that night. She never made it inside Bowling World. But we do, in fact, have proof that Melissa went to Bowling World that evening. Absolutely. We do have proof that she did go to Bowling World that evening. Her car was um, found in the parking lot, but it is believed that she arrived at, at Bowling World approximately... It's believed between 6:15 and 6:30. When she left her, when she left the dental office, her car wouldn't start. She had some help getting her car started. She went on home and changed clothes. We do know that she did make it home to change clothes. A neighbor saw her. Her mother was able to verify the fact that Melissa had changed clothes. She was able to identify the clothes that she had worn that day because they were missing from the missing from the house. So we knew that she was wearing those clothes and then left her house to go on to Bowling World. But she never made it inside. The attack on Melissa would have been very quick and swift, we believe. We know that her keys were found in the parking lot at 7.30, so the attack on Melissa Witt happened when she arrived and happened between 6.30 and 7.30, because as I stated, the keys were found at 7.30. But it was a league night, very busy, so the parking lot was full, but most people were inside. They're just aren't a lot of witnesses to whatever happened to Melissa. All right, so a lot of things to process. We have a college-aged girl, Melissa Witt. She went to work. Mm-hmm. We know that her car didn't start, so somebody had to help her. Correct. I'm guessing probably like a battery or something. It's the winter months. Yeah, so it, it sounds like the person that helped her with her vehicle was unknown to Melissa Witt. So a co-worker of hers stayed and kind of oversaw what was going on. So she was not alone with this unknown good Samaritan that helped her with her vehicle. And I think you're right. Guy or girl. I think it was a battery issue that they had to jumpstart her car. Mm -hmm. But guy or girl, I'm I'm guessing a guy helped helped her. I have no information as to the gender of the coworker or the gender of the good Samaritan. Right. So she leaves work. She goes home. She changes. We have some evidence of that. Then she comes to the bowling alley It's league night. She's going to go hang out with her her mother. Yes, and so she would have finally left work around a quarter till six, stopping off at her home, and then, as you said, going to Bowling World to meet up with her mom. 
Uh, and it sounds like she would have arrived there between about 6.15 and 6.30 on that evening. Right. Then we have this hour gap, and then these keys are found. Her keys are found in the parking lot. Uh-huh. Right? So... Right. So at 7.30, the keys are found, and that's perfect because that leads us to our next question that we had for LaDonna. If the keys were found at 7.30, is that the time that we now know that we have a missing person? No, and that is where this case just really almost falls apart at the beginning. Because Melissa never went inside the bowling alley, her mom assumed that she she just didn't show up that night. When her mom left the bowling league, it would have still been crowded. It's a very large parking lot. She didn't see her daughter's car, but she wasn't looking for her daughter's car. Melissa never showed up. As far as Mary Ann was concerned, Melissa had gone on to do something else. So it wasn't until Mary Ann Witt had gone home and Melissa didn't come home that night. So about 3 o'clock in the morning, after you know calling friends and, and waiting frantically for Melissa, she decides to kind of drive around looking for Melissa. But she never goes and looks at Bowling World because it didn't dawn on her to look there because she never saw Melissa there that night. So, you know, we're losing time because had she gone to Bowling World, she would have seen that her daughter's car was there and the other there was some other key evidence that was in the parking lot. So unfortunately, Marianne went went back home. She called the police the next morning. And when um, the patrolman came out to take the report from Marianne Witt about Melissa, he asked her, had anything happened between you and Melissa that day? Was there any kind of an argument? You know, was Melissa upset? And that's when Marianne had to say, well, yes, we did have a small argument. That morning, and they did. It was a typical argument between a mother and a daughter. Melissa had asked to borrow money, you know, a small loan. Her mom said no, and that was that. There, you know, that was the end of it. But because Melissa's mother told the patrolman about that argument, he chalked it up in his report as someone that was a runaway. You know, rightfully so. Every day in America, police departments take reports of people who are missing who really they've gotten mad, they've taken off, and they come back, or they've run away, and they come back. So in his mind, this was just a mad teenage girl. Well, that all makes sense. I mean, it makes sense that Melissa's mother would not have looked for her at the bowling alley because she had no reason to believe that she ever arrived there. there. Yeah, yeah. And then we have the situation where once it's reported, you know, now we know Melissa's been missing for eight hours by this point. Right. She's finally reported missing. And then the officer taking the report, rightfully so, thinks that we have a runaway situation because there was an argument. You know, we've seen this a bazillion times, Captain, especially when we covered the Texas killing field cases. Anytime you have somebody in that teenage years. Right. And they had some kind of spat with mom or dad or both. And that's reported in the missing persons report, you know, rightfully so. It's right. it's thought to be someone that left of their own reasons, that left on their own, and they'll be back soon. Well, hats off to any parent that has had to deal with a teenage daughter. I couldn't imagine what that's like. Uh, but I think in these cases, we shouldn't assume that they're a runaway and that they're going to come back and we're going to see them the next day or so. Now, LaDonna, we have Melissa's mother who was the one reporting her missing. She's the one that had the argument with Melissa that day. What was her gut feeling and what was her reaction as to what was going on? Marianne knew that something was wrong. And so she started calling Melissa's friends and they orchestrated 
a search party of their own. They began to pass out flyers all over the city of Fort Smith. And because of their efforts and because they went to the police station, two days later, the major crimes unit got involved in Melissa's case. That's when they heard about the fact that this beautiful 19-year-old student was missing, that she hadn't come home. And so as soon as the major crimes unit you know, became aware that Melissa Witt was missing and they had boots on the ground, they found her car in the Bowling World parking lot. But they had lost two days at that point. So they find her car, but they already found her keys. Well, not necessarily. They don't know that these keys belong to Melissa Witt. Mm-hmm. All they know is that we have some lost keys. My guess is is that keys were found not knowing that the vehicle belonging to those keys are still in the parking lot. Okay, okay. And then it's turned into the lost and found, I'm guessing, at the bowling alley by somebody probably leaving the bowling alley that night. Yes, you're correct. So the keys were found by someone that was at the bowling alley with um, their family. They found the keys in the parking lot. They turned it in, did not realize that there was some blood that had dried on those keys when they turned those keys in. And um, that person who found the keys actually went out of town for a job um, after that weekend. And it wasn't for a few days that he became aware that that this was in the media. You know, it didn't hit the media until late Sunday or Monday about Melissa. And when he found out, hey, there was this girl named Melissa Witt that, you know, went missing from Bowling World, he remembered that he had found some keys that he had turned in, you know, with with the name Missy. And he, he was able to tell, you know, law enforcement, hey, this happened at 7.30. So that helped establish a timeline. But they also knew that they had a very serious crime on their hands because once once her car was found in the parking lot, they also found um, pools of blood throughout the parking lot that later were, they were able to determine the blood belonged to Melissa Witt. They found um, a crushed hair clip that belonged to Melissa Witt. They found um, one of her earrings. And then they had some various accounts of what later became very confusing and actually led the case in some strange directions. But they did have some um, some witnesses come forward that said that they had seen an argument in the parking lot. You know, another witnesses, witness had said, you know, he had heard screams. And so they were able then to take all of that information and, and, and construct a timeline. And you would think, you know, we've both been bowling before. Right? Yeah, of course. Uh, hey, some people have. I'm bowling right now. <laughs> I got my bowling shoes on and everything. I was in a bowling league when I was a kid. We had a really uh, awesome team name. Want to guess what it's called? The Three Amigos. No, it's just two people. Only, that's well, that's why it would have been extra funny. Uh, <laughs> balls of Steel. There you go. That's what happens when you're in like eighth grade. You think that's hilarious. And when you're the captain. <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, no, but you'd think that maybe there would be some 911 call because there was some confrontation in the parking lot, uh, and there was some screams. Yeah. I I, th- those two things to me go, there's nobody checking that out. Well, and I originally, I thought that this would be like a very big stroke of luck here that you have this guy finds the keys in the parking lot, turns them into the lost and found. Mm -hmm. And then like she said, like LaDonna said, two days go by before this thing hits the media, before they know they have an abduction. Mm -hmm. And he overhears this and he calls the bowling alley or calls the police and says, I was the guy that found those keys. 
And I found them that night around 7.30. I thought this was just a really big stroke of luck that, okay, now we can really narrow down this timeline that, right. that she disappeared. Not only was she abducted by 7.30, but you have to presume that the person had made off with her by that point. Well, no, there, but there was an attack. Mm-hmm. I mean, we got pools of blood in the parking lot. Right, and that's what I'm saying. I Originally hearing this information, I thought it was a great stroke of luck, but, but really you would end up to this conclusion regardless whether this man came forward or not saying that he found the keys right. at 7.30 because of the evidence found in the parking lot. You could surmise that after she left her work, not having left there until a quarter till six, mm-hmm. stopping off at home, you have to believe she was attacked very quickly after arriving to the parking lot at the bowling world. And if there's pools of blood, I mean, this is has to be a vicious attack, right? Yeah, and, and somebody, some way somebody was able to attack her and control her. So my guess would be there's some kind of, you know, attack where she's she's hit over the head with something. Right. But it's kind of hard for me to believe that, you know, you're you're in your league, balls of steel, and the three amigos are playing, and you find these car keys, and you don't see these pools of blood. Well, you have to keep in mind it's dark out, one. And then two, this person you don't walk around looking for pools of blood. You know, you see right. some keys on the, on the ground and you, you think I'm just going to do something nice. If I would have lost my keys, I wish somebody would turn them into the front desk. You're assuming the person that lost their keys is inside bowling. Mm-hmm. They're going to come out, not be able to get into their car. They're going to go to the front desk and ask if anybody found any keys. Well, wow, it's a little suspicious to me. We'll get right back to the case of Melissa Witt right after this quick beer break. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. 
Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no-prep, no-mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code True Crime Garage 50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. All right, cheers, mates. Thanks for sharing on social media. Cheers to you, Captain. Let's listen back in on our interview here. 
LaDonna, could you tell us in better detail about what was found in the parking lot of Bowling World and then what that evidence led the investigators to believe? Yeah, I, I can. Um, so there, let's start with the blood. So the blood pools, um, and, and I'm going to give you what my opinion is after I've you know, studied the evidence and I've had you know, full access to the case file. It's believed that Melissa got out of her car that she immediately encountered her her attacker as she was walking towards the door of the bowling world. But, you know, she didn't get very far. Believe that she most likely spurned someone's advances and they struck her in the head. And, and you know, later we can talk about how we know that that, that indeed did happen. So there, there are um, pools of, you know, a few spots of blood by her car and a few throughout the parking lot where she was clearly dragged or carried and then placed into another vehicle. The larger pool of blood is in a in a parking spot that's further back where I believe the assailant's car was parked, probably had her hunched over, you know, and if it's a head wound, it's going to bleed a little bit more as he, he put her in the trunk or in the truck bed or in a van, whatever vehicle that he had. That's what the that, that evidence looks like. But as far as the witness evidence, it's really it's really complicated, and it's really um, it, it's sad what happened with the case almost because you know when when this hit the media, people started coming forward and said, "Hey, I I saw someone that that I believe was Melissa Witt that was arguing in the parking lot with an African American male," and when that story broke. And they did a composite sketch based on a couple of the witnesses. This story um, about Melissa Witt just took outrageous twists and turns. I mean, outrageous. It took law enforcement on uh, a chase that was fruitless. It was just the wrong direction. And it really hurt the case because we were later able to determine that there was a Caucasian female later that evening that did argue in the parking lot with her African-American boyfriend, but it wasn't Melissa Witt. And there are people to this day that even I've interviewed for our documentary who they just swear that it was Melissa Witt, but it just, it wasn't. We have no evidence to prove that it was. You know, the most reliable evidence was from a young boy that exited Bowling World to go out to his car to get a book out of his car. He was there with his mom who was on the league. And around 630 640, he heard a woman scream, help me. Now, he didn't see anybody, really. You know, that gave us an accurate time frame as far as when we believe Melissa was attacked. But as far as anybody seeing anything, you know, this was right about when the league was starting up. You know, it was a women's league night. Everybody was inside. There were very few people left in the parking lot, unfortunately. It's been maddening for us as a team and, you know, we did chase a lot of these stories down that even law enforcement has looked at. And it's just unfortunate the amount of time and effort that went into chasing some of this down that turned out to be nothing. Then it blew this Melissa Witt story into something that it wasn't. It, people started to question her character. Rumors started to spill out that had nothing to do with the case, but it really complicated the search for Melissa Witt. You know, that's one of the things that we hope that we can, you know, help with our documentary is kind of show everyone what happened 
um, why the case got derailed and that those those things absolutely did not happen. And it's a weird thing because you want eyewitnesses to come forward, but when you have eyewitnesses coming forward with phony information, and it's not that they're lying to you. It's just they saw they saw a white female arguing with an African-American male, but it was just a different girl. But that's kind of how some of these cases never get solved is because when do, people do come forward, it's just not with the correct information. Right. Well, and to be honest with you, eyewitness accounts are not very good. Um, they're, they're actually some of the worst information and evidence you can have in most cases because people are human and, and they make inferences and they make assumptions. So when, when you get a tip from that night, from December 1st, 1994, when somebody calls in, they don't call in and say, I saw an African American guy Mm -hmm. arguing with a white chick. Mm -hmm. No, they call in and they say, I saw some dude in the parking lot arguing with Melissa Witt. Right. That's what they say. That's, and then you're like, Ooh, we have something here. And then you, once you start piecing this thing together and you figure out that, Oh, well, her car keys were found at seven 30. This argument that was witnessed in the parking lot is happening after that time. Mark, after that time frame. this is not Melissa Witt. This is not who was arguing with Melissa Witt. Just so happens to be it's two other people that were spotted later that evening. Well, let's go over something that we do know. So we do know that the attack happened pretty quickly and based on the blood evidence that the attacker probably was parked further away. Correct. So they parked kind of in the back, but they knew. So, so my gut feeling is that this person either knew, uh, knew her well, well enough to know that she was going to go to the bowling alley. Yeah. Or it was just somebody uh, that followed her there. This followed her there. Saw her and's like, hey, that's an attractive girl. I will attack her, and followed her there. Now that's something that's something interesting here because you bring up the the thought of some of the psychology of the suspect, and let's dive into some of the psychology of the actual victim here. So, what can this tell us? Well, it sounds to us. Like LaDonna believes that mm-hmm. Melissa was approached by this person, that whoever attacked her approach approached her and had some kind of brief interaction with her right. before he struck her over the head, dragged her or, or, or threw her over his shoulder and brought her to his vehicle. But we don't know what the evidence of that is, why she believes that, or if it's just gut feeling. Um, I'm with you. My, my gut feeling, my initial things that the, my initial suspicion here was that that didn't really go down that way. Right. But I'm going to go with LaDonna's thought on this. She's much closer to the case than I am. And so I'm, I'm going to go with the LaDonna's correct. Okay. Maybe she has something we don't know about yet and she'll get into that. But here's the thing, captain, what could that tell us about either our victim or our suspect? Well, if they did engage in some kind of, interaction with one another mm-hmm. like you said possibility because look if i'm approached by somebody that i don't know at all i'm going to be very standoffish and if i'm a 19 year old girl who's approached by some strange man in a parking lot i might even scream or yell and run from that person mm-hmm. so what could it tell us about the suspect like you said either she may have knew him maybe not that well but knew him and had spoken to him at some point before, or if he's a total suspect and I've heard a total stranger, Mm -hmm. I've heard this in other cases too. There's a chance he was attractive. 
I've heard other victims, other female victims come forward where police are saying, well, why did you engage with that person when he, when this stranger? Yeah. Bundy. Yeah. yeah. Wh- why, why did you just go along and talk to this person when they approached you? And the number one answer is always, well, he was attractive and he looked harmless. Yeah. I, uh, my gut feeling is telling me that this individual, the suspect followed her, knew that he was going to park far away, knew that there was going to be little to no interaction with her. Mm-hmm. She was a victim in his mind and he attacked her from the word go. I don't think she, there was, there wasn't a conversation. I don't think there was, you know, um, you know, come with me or anything. I think it was just, I'm going to hit this lady. This is my game plan. I'm going to park a little bit further away. Mm-hmm. This we're talking about a bowling alley on a league night. That's full. I mean, yeah. if you drive it's by, a, you, you drive by a bowling alley, like, like on a Tuesday that there's no league night. I mean, it looks like the place it has gone under. There's nobody there. Right. But you go on a league night, it's like, you know, it, it seems like bowling's like the best thing since uh, sliced bread. So there's tons of people in the parking lot. You know that if you're going to attack this individual that you have to do it quickly. I believe this this suspect has ran into her before because he had to know not only, and, and, and I don't know where, but he had to know that I'm going to be able to attack her and I'm going to be able to, you know, to be able to manhandle her back into my vehicle. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, but here's where my mind goes. I I think that if he was a total stranger, that I don't think he followed her there. Because if I'm following a total stranger to a parking lot, and like you said, it's a fast attack, but the longer that this attack takes place and the longer that it takes me to get the victim from where I attack her into my vehicle, right. the more likelihood that I'm seen, that I'm spotted, that somebody jots down part of my license plate or gives a good description of my vehicle and myself. Mm-hmm. So here's where my thought is. If he's parked that a, a decent distance from her, right? I'm almost thinking he was already there when she pulled into the parking lot. Right. And so he's just, okay, he might've so- been sitting in the parking lot, scouring the park parking lot, waiting for an attractive young woman to pull into a spot and he's going to approach her and attack her. Yeah. And which, uh, you know, cause you, something that was really interesting before that was said before was this was uh, a league night. Mm-hmm. This was ladies league night and somebody would know that. Somebody in the area would very likely know. And so that, if yes. you're if you're going to prey on uh, on a female, well, why not go to league night where there's a bunch of females? Yeah. But like I said, I think the attack. I think once uh, the suspect knew this person's my victim, or I, you know, just from eyeballing the person, I can carry this person back to my vehicle because it's going to have to be somewhat quick. Yes, Goes it, out it there. was a blitz attack, definitely. Exactly. That's that's what I think. All right, we are both exactly correct. <laughs> okay. All right, LaDonna, just double-checking on something here because you are, and where this case took place, is Central Standard Time. I am in Eastern Time. So I'm guessing, though, even though that this is Central Time, that in December, we're probably 6.30, 6.15, we're probably getting dark outside at that time. Right, you're correct. About that time, about six, six fifteen, it, it's getting, it's getting darker. Her, her attacker had that advantage, working for him for sure, and he was most likely 
much larger than Melissa. He was able able to overpower her pretty quickly. You know, people ask me quite a bit if I think there were more than one person involved in the case, if, you know, there were multiple attackers. You know, anything is possible, but not everything is probable. And it's just really unlikely that there was more than one attacker. Was Melissa a pretty small person? She was a petite gal, um, you know, 125 pounds, you know, 5'6". Just, uh, you know, would have been easily overpowered. And it appears that she would have been struck over the head with some type of object. Exactly. You know, when her body was recovered, the medical examiner's report did indicate that she had been struck in the head. The head wound um, was not fatal, but it would have caused the bleeding and it would have most likely, you know, knocked her unconscious possibly for, you know, a period of time. So that's definitely, somebody struck her in anger, you know, maybe they did strike her because she wouldn't come with them or they were trying to control the situation. Or, you know, in my opinion, it was somebody that she knew, in my opinion, and I think it it just got out of hand really quick. Given what we now know, it would lead me to believe a couple different things here. Mm -hmm. That either she, like you had said, Captain, that she was followed there, or yeah, that's my gut feeling. Or this was some type of crime of opportunity where there was a person leaving the bowling alley that saw her or for some re- reason was already in that parking lot. So LaDonna, is that the two possibilities? I would add maybe a third thought to that as well though is that she sometimes did attend league night with her mom. So, you know, her mom did bowl every Thursday night. Now, Melissa didn't go every Thursday night. She didn't even go every other Thursday night. She didn't go often enough that someone would have been certain she would have been there. But if someone had known her, they would have known it's a possibility that she was there. So that's something to think about, too. I really do truly believe that whoever attacked and killed Melissa Witt had met her at least once before. I think that they wanted Melissa Witt. I think that she rejected them. And I think that they were there either hoping she was going to be there or they followed her with the intent of either trying to uh, win her over and woo her or maybe maybe their intent was to murder her. I mean, I can't say for certain. I mean, when we, when we talk a little bit more about how she died, it's a very intimate crime which also indicates that it was somebody that she knew. Definitely a crime of passion. Melissa's body was not found until about six weeks later. Can you tell us how and who found her? I can. She was found um, six weeks later in Franklin County and a portion of Franklin County that's called Ozark, Arkansas. It was in the Ozark National Forest. She was found off an old logging road, and um, she was found by two trappers. And there's a lot of mystery around this because these trappers traveled that road every single day. And she hadn't been there the day before. But, you know, they came that morning, January 13th, and, and, you know, they found her that day. And the night before, the Fort Smith Police Department had received a phone call, an anonymous phone call, from um, what is believed to be a grandmother and her grandson. And the grandmother was urging her grandson to tell police what he had found. But he um, was too afraid to talk on the phone, and basically um, they ended the call. Police weren't were not able at that time 
you know, unfortunately because of technology to trace that call. But it's believed that that call was um, about Melissa Witt. We believe that that person actually found her body and moved her body from where the killer had had placed it. Her body had originally been placed behind a rock, this large rock off of that logging road that um, actually kind of looks like a tombstone. I've been there, and, and this rock is actually kind of uphill from the road. So when you think about this in context of, you know, when she died, how she died, um, and, and the location of where he, he he took her and where he placed her body, it's all very, it's concerning. It's someone, in my opinion, that knew that area and most likely lives in that area. Uh, you know, there there's a lot of different theories on, um, you know, when Melissa Witt died. And I'm not so certain that it was that day. Um, law enforcement believes that it was that day. But there, you know, I think it's possible that there was a couple of days of discrepancy there. So if she wasn't killed the day that she was taken, so this monster that takes her could have took her somewhere and held her captive and possibly tortured her for a couple days. That's what's frightening to me because, you know, she was found um, completely nude. The killer had taken, you know, all of her clothing, her socks and her shoes. He had taken her other earring and he had taken her Mickey Mouse watch. And he also took her purse. So none of her belongings have ever been found. And it makes you question this jack wagon of this grandson. Like, why are you moving the dead body? Note to kids, don't move the dead body. And LaDonna, that's, that is a crazy thing right there. Because we've read about this case quite a bit. And this was not something that we had come across. So to the idea that someone finds this body, potentially finds this body, and moves it, it makes you wonder what other involvement this person would have had in this case? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, and I, I asked myself that too. You know, I have, you know, asked a lot of questions of the lead detective and then the retired detective, you know, who originally had the case. And I've worked on this project for two years, and I'm just, I'm perplexed by that. Because, you know, what that means for this this poor girl who was murdered is that not only did she meet an attacker in this parking lot, and he takes her to this remote location, you know, she's killed, she's placed behind the rock, and then somebody else comes along and moves her. I mean, that's just horrific to me. And it's 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 really unlikely that the person who moved her didn't know about the crime. And, you know, there's always debate back and forth, especially on my team, about, you know, part of my team thinks the person that moved her is the person that killed her. I personally don't think that. I think they had some kind of knowledge of the crime. But, you know, I've seen the medical examiner's report. It was not a large animal that moved her because we've been asked that, you know, because there is bear activity up in that area. It was not a bear that moved Melissa. It was a human. We're we're positive of this because of the way her body was moved and how it was laid out. You know, there was animal activity, unfortunately, on the body, but it was small animal activity, which would be typical of of any kind of, of, you know, corpse that is left out in, in a national forest. So, you know, we're confident that it was a human that was involved. And, and, and the location is remote. I mean, it is remote. And you would have to know where you were going. And, you know, it's not someone that killed her and, and then, you know, rushed to, to, to dispose of the body because they certainly wouldn't have driven almost an hour away when there are, tons of other places closer that they could have disposed of a body. 
I mean, this location meant something to somebody. It's just so isolated. And you certainly wouldn't have been able to go there at night had you never been there before and then find your way back out. Like I said, I've been there multiple times, and it's it's eerie. It's It's a very eerie location. Now, when you say that this area meant something to her killer, mm-hmm. meant something to the person that placed her there, you mean the area that she was found? Absolutely. I think that this could have been a favorite hunting spot for the person that killed her. Perhaps it was a favorite spot for someone that had grown up in the area. Um, I, I just think that there was a reason why they chose that particular rock to put her body behind because I'm telling you, it, it looks like a tombstone. It's just very, very eerie. And we've got several, several very, you know, good suspects that would have had reason to know that location and ha- and to have frequented that location. So I really do believe that that location meant something to someone, you know, they had been there multiple times. Well, and maybe if this location means something to them, they placed her there so they could come back to visit. And I know that sounds sick. Well, she was originally placed behind the rock, and then she was moved from behind that rock about 10 feet away from the rock in full view of that logging road. So whoever moved her wanted her to be found. So she was never going to be found behind that rock. It was just the likelihood was very, very um, slim. But as far as you know, law enforcement believes that she was taken there that night and she was killed there that night. So they believe that she left Bowling World with her attacker, and that's immediately where he drove and, and killed her. And she was strangled, and she was strangled um, there at that location. We know that for a fact. And nothing of hers or nothing of an unidentified person's was found with her. No, no, and that's what makes it even more frustrating. It's almost like, you know... In, I say this carefully because I don't know it for certain, but it's almost like they worked really hard to cover up any of their DNA tracks. Now, you know, in 1994, we were just seeing the rise of DNA in different kinds of court cases. You know, at that time, everything was happening with the O.J. Simpson trial. And so we were seeing a rise in that being used, but most people didn't really know about that, really. And certainly didn't know what steps to take to maybe, you know, prevent somebody from being able to find DNA. But, you know, they did take her clothes. They took everything that she had. They did that for a reason. And here's where my mind goes, LaDonna, is that it makes me wonder and suspect Mm -hmm. that whoever either moved the body and or killed her, that maybe they went to this scene multiple times. And I don't mean so much to visit with the body, let's say. I mean simply just to collect evidence. We have a situation where we know that she was brought to that location and then killed. Well, if she was taken there, like law law enforcement would believe that evening and killed there that night, she was killed in a remote wooded area in the dark. It would be damn near impossible to assure yourself as the killer that you've located every piece, every belonging that she brought with her to that location and that you in fact didn't drop any of your belongings there that evening as well you're exactly correct i mean you're exactly right i play that scenario in my head and i do believe that the person that killed her and maybe some others that found out about the crime did visit the scene you know there were there were some reports and and we have a composite sketch that has been 
circulating of a car and a man that was in the car that was seen on that logging road um, not long before her body was found. And so being able to identify who that man is is, you know, a mystery. But here's another theory that I'd like to kind of put out there. You know, and again, it's my opinion, but, you know, it's it's hard for me to believe that someone attacked her and then drove her an hour away, okay, because she would have not been unconscious the entire time. She would have woken up at some point. So how did they subdue her for that 50, 60-mile car ride? They take her out to this location. They um, most likely sexually assault her because she is found, you know, nude. Right. So did they sexually assault her out in the cold in December up on a hill behind a rock? I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, we know that she died at that location because, according to the medical examiner, there was um, debris from that area that they were able to determine came from that area in her lungs and in her airway. So we know that she she that's how she died. It, It seems more plausible to me that perhaps he lived nearby. And she escaped him maybe the next day, maybe the day after, and he chased her, and she came to that location, and he caught her, and he killed her. That seems more plausible to me. But, I, you know, I debate that. I debate that with the retired detective, and I debate that with my team. I mean, it's we don't know for sure. But that does seem to me, in my opinion, to make the most sense. I really just don't see how all of that could have happened and the cleanup been so precise unless maybe it happened, you know, the way I'm suggesting. Or maybe they did come back to the site multiple times, which makes the crime even more disturbing, really, and tells me even more that maybe this person, you know, cared about Melissa in some way, you know, to keep coming back and visiting. It's a possibility. But, you know, my fear is is that we're never going to find out. I mean, here we are two decades later, and it's just we, we still are seeking those answers. So just to be clear here, if she were left behind that rock, she most likely would have never been found. And then she's moved down to the road where it's very obvious that she would be found and be found very quickly. Well, she was moved closer to be viewable from the road, right? You, you think about that. They moved a body that had been decomposing for six weeks. I mean, that is a horrific thing to do. I I still get chills when I think about that. But you really want to wonder about the psychology of the fact that somebody moves this body. Mm-hmm. It almost It almost goes to one of two things for me, that either someone was showing some form of remorse for finding Melissa or knowing that she was there or putting her there. Well, it's hard to believe with a body so decomposed that somebody would move it by accident or, you know, it'd be a younger person that was curious about the dead body because it was so decomposed, but it's, it's still a probability. And you see, like, maybe, maybe there's remorse that somebody wants her to be found so that there's some form of closure for Melissa's family. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe so that she receives a a proper burial rather than being laying out in the woods. Um, or does somebody want credit for this? Does somebody want it to be known that she didn't just leave on her own or that she was kidnapped? 
Right. Does somebody want some form of credit in the newspapers or on the news that that she was in fact taken and she was in fact murdered? Exactly. Or or maybe or maybe the killer in a drug induced state told someone else and they they were overwhelmed with guilt and they moved the body. I mean, it, you know, it's possible that a, a hunter did come across the body. It's possible. I'm not I'm not sure I can understand why they would move the body and then not report it to police or not just call police and say, hey, I found this body. There has to be a reason why they would be afraid that they would be blamed or why they wouldn't just come forward. There has to be a reason. But figuring that out, I mean, that just adds to the the absolute mystery and just almost insanity in this case. It's like how many things can go up against, you know, us being able to solve this and bring some closure and justice for Melissa Witt. It's frustrating. I lose a lot of sleep over it. I'm going to be honest. I lose a lot of sleep over it. What else can you tell us about that strange phone call that was received with a grandmother and a grandson calling about Melissa or about the body? Can you give us any more insight into that? Really, just that. I mean, there was enough information given on the call that they know that the caller was calling about Melissa Witt. As far as them releasing that recording um, to the public to hopefully identify who those people were, they've never done that. Um, It is something that we'd like to include in the documentary, so that's something that we're working towards being able to do. But that's, that's as much knowledge as I have on it. I mean, it was a pretty brief call. But, you know, we are certain that the call was about Melissa Witt. And, you know, the person that wouldn't talk, you know, wouldn't say very much, the young man, I believe he was truly terrified. I think he was terrified, maybe maybe traumatized by what he had found, or maybe he was afraid he was going to be blamed, or maybe he had information that he just, you know, didn't want to share because he feared for his life. I mean, that's possible. Let's go back into the early stages of the investigation. What were their initial leads and what were their what were they tracking down to begin with? Were they questioning classmates? Were they questioning family members? So everybody close to Melissa was looked at and looked at very closely, including the young man that she had had lunch with that day, that very day. Um, you know, those people were all able to be cleared. You know, people um at the community college were looked at, you know, they were brought in, they were questioned. Um, Sex offenders were brought in, they were questioned. Um, There were about 300 people that were heavily interviewed in this case. I mean, there was one man who um, had committed a murder, um, you know, in the next town over. And, you know, it was, could have been similar. It was a parking lot type of um, crime and you know they brought him in and of course you know that led to nothing there was a a, another suspect who you know they interviewed him um, many times but he was um, you know posing as a police officer not far from where the bowling alley was and um, they were able to clear him you know they do have people that they've looked at that failed polygraphs that they've not been able to clear I mean there are a lot of suspects in this case um and I've been very intrigued and also very disturbed by the amount of level three sex offenders that were in the area and that didn't have an alibi that could have been responsible for this crime. I mean, it's, it just it blows my mind. So the, the investigation to, you know, the credit of law enforcement 
it was thorough. They worked it hard. They worked every lead that came in. They were determined and are still determined to solve Melissa's case. There was just a lot of unfortunate things that happened. You know, about six months after um, this happened, a, a young girl, a child went missing. And it's one of the most infamous cases in the state of Arkansas and the United States. And that did divert media attention and the public's attention away from Melissa's case. It didn't deter Fort Smith, you know, Fort Smith law enforcement, but, you know, let's, let's be honest. Six-year-old girl went missing. <laughs> and, you know, that greatly affected what happened even with the media keeping the story alive. So it was just a series of unfortunate events. Well, Captain, I'm glad that the investigators did that. I'm glad that the police did that. And what is that? They did the old pervert roundup. <laughs> they know, did their old uh, due diligence on the perverts. They don't always do that in these cases. And I don't understand why sometimes I question the the investigations. But when you talk to all the people that she went to school with, and when you talk to the guy that she had lunch with that mm-hmm. day, when you talk to the family and you can't come up with any leads. The bowling alley doesn't provide any leads. You go after the pervert. You got to do the old pervert roundup. Yeah, show me your hands. And sorry if nobody likes that term, but guess what? That's what the detectives and the cops call it when you are not standing right next to them. Well, we have a lot of, what was it, level three sex offenders? Yeah, so level three sex offenders, and I think um, just to... Maybe maybe we should be clear that this this Fort Smith area of Arkansas is probably not as bad as uh, LaDonna is making it sound there with the number of level three sex offenders. But when you have that amount of level threes in the area, mm-hmm. you have to talk with them because because the the recidivism rates are between 70 and 80 percent in a lot of these cases. Right. And. And so there's there's a strong argument that these level three sex offenders cannot be rehabilitated, that they will go out and they will offend again. Yeah, it's just a matter of time, really. The nice thing is when you're doing the old pervert roundup, that it's actually not that complicated of a process because it's kind of like the Cupid shuffle slide to the left. Well, every single one of them that had nothing to do with this murder or this abduction of this 19-year-old girl, every single one of them wants to talk to you. All you have to do is make a phone call or knock on a door, and they will tell you everything. If they've got nothing to hide, they will tell you everything because they're so afraid of going back to prison uh, because all of them are on parole. You know, and so so it's usually a pretty easy thing to do. I'm just shocked that there were so many in the area, but I applaud the investigators for making the extra effort. Well, the fact that they were also registered. I mean, that that's the scariest thing. And we've talked about it before, but you can look it up. Um, Basically, our government tells you, hey, there's about 100,000 sex offenders that should be registered that Mm -hmm. we have no clue where they're at. Over a hundred thousand. I mean, lock your doors. Well, and if you want some education on the difference between the levels of one, two, and three on sex offenders, I believe Mm -hmm. we discussed that at length during our fifth nail uh, episodes. But basically with the level threes, these aren't guys that, this isn't like some guy that was peeing in a park late at night when he was drunk and the cops saw him. No, usually, Mm -hmm. usually this involves some form of abduction, some form of threat of, of death or bodily injury to the person that, that they're offending against, or it's a minor and a young minor. I believe you, it, it varies 
by state, but it's probably, I would guess, 12, 12 years old in, in this state. So these are bad, very, very bad people. And so we're not breaking any rules. We're not infringing on anyone's rights, in my opinion, by rounding these guys up and asking them very simple questions. Where were you on December 1st, 1994? Mm-hmm. And who can tell us that you were where you say you were? It's very simple. Well, maybe we should have LaDonna kind of talk about the area uh, so people can get a better picture of what was going on in 1994 on December 1st. It was 1994. And fortunately, I think everybody will be disturbed to know the truth of the fact is that there are level three sex offenders in everybody's neighborhood (laughs) and in their greater surrounding areas. This is just something that um, is kind of in your face more when someone goes missing and you you dig in and and you dive in and you do that investigative work and you find that out. So I think for the most part, people didn't know that. You know, Fort Smith is kind of a crossroads town. It's, you know, about... 75, 80,000 people. It's, um, you know, pretty close to the border right there where, where Oklahoma is. It's just one of those areas that, you know, on the surface seems okay. It seems safe. You know, Melissa had no reason, her family had no reason to think differently. You know, there had not been any kind of case like this that had happened in their town or in the state for that matter until this happened. And so I think the town, you know, the family, the town, all of us, all of us at that time were naive. And I think that people are still naive today. I mean, this has really, I have kids of my own. I have seven kids, believe it or not. And, um, you know, it's really made me be more aware of of what's in my own community. And it's it's disturbing. But I think that if all of us kind of really took notice in our own backyard, we would, we would live our lives a little bit differently, but nobody was doing that, especially back in the nineties. I mean, they just weren't, they just, these are not things that you thought about or that you knew about. Did the bowling alley have any surveillance footage? Did they have any cameras inside the building or out in the parking lot so that maybe they could draw a lead from someone leaving the bowling alley or some form of activity in the parking lot? Bowling world did not have security cameras in the parking lot. And they didn't have very good lighting in the parking lot. And to this day, even after this crime happened, they do not have security cameras in their parking lot. It's something that's really frustrating to me, especially in this day and age. But no, there's no security cameras. And in fact, some of the buildings that were surrounding Bowling World at the time, and there weren't a lot, they didn't have any kind of security footage that would have been pointing towards Bowling World. So there's nothing, nothing. Now, you know, there's some neighboring, you know, convenience stores and some other stores that um, they were able to try to look at footage then to see if they could put, you know, put some things together. But it wasn't close enough to Bowling World to be able to um, to make any kind of identification on who, who took Melissa Witt. It's just like they came out of nowhere like a ghost and took her. We have a lot more to get to with this Melissa Witt case. Thanks for hanging out in the garage with us. We hope everybody has a great evening. Have a great night. We'll see you tomorrow. Until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter.
The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.